Tonight, scandal-plagued Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been crisscrossing the continent on a luxury vacation over the past couple of days, and boy, is my wallet tired then. An election in Alberta is imminent, or so our fixed election date law says, so why is the party in power already campaigning like they're in opposition? It's March 14, 2019. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Scandal is raging in Ottawa. Justin Trudeau and his prime minister's office are accused of putting illegal pressure on Canada's former attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybould, to cut a sweetheart deal with a corrupt Quebec-based company called SNC-Lavalin, all to protect liberal votes in that province. The government is in complete crisis, and now they're being accused of a cover-up after using their majority at committee to block opposition attempts to bring the former attorney general back to testify. But what does a responsible grown-up do in crisis? Well, <laughs> we're not exactly talking about a responsible grown-up here, are we? We're talking about Justin Trudeau. And what does he do? Well, he goes on a vacation to a private island in Florida. Let me show you what Justin Trudeau was up to while the hot garbage fire of the SNC-Lavalin scandal continues to burn like the fire of a thousand suns in Ottawa. I found this Neat little graphic on Twitter, and it shows Justin Trudeau's Challenger jet over the last few days. So on Saturday, March 9th, Justin Trudeau leaves Ottawa for southwest Florida to a private island called Captiva Island. And then on Monday, March 11th, he turns around and flies back to Ottawa in the Challenger. Then on the 12th, one day later, he flies back to Florida. Was there no better way to plan this vacation? so that there wasn't an extra cross-continent flight involved, like putting it off for a couple of days like a normal person would have. Now, according to the folks over at Post Millennial, Justin Trudeau's jaunting back and forth between Ottawa and Florida over the past few days has run up a $100,000 bill to the taxpayer. I've covered Justin Trudeau's travel expenses extensively here at The Rebel. I go over those flight records for the government challenger all the time. And you know what, to be honest with you, I do get a lot of criticism for doing so, even from people who profess to me that they're conservative, even from people who work for official conservatives. So let me be clear on two things that people often get so nitpicky with me about. I fully acknowledge that Justin Trudeau cannot fly on a commercial airline. The security detail requirements just make that sort of thing completely impossible. I mean, that's just logical. And I certainly don't begrudge a man a vacation with his children, although my tolerance for such things does run a little thin when it seems as though the family vacations are every month or so. And also, you know, in the middle of what could be a criminal investigation into obstruction of justice back in Ottawa, Normally, the same people critical of Trump for golfing at his private estate 
are the same ones completely excusing Justin Trudeau for wanting all of this expensive family time. Whatever, I get it, it's political, fine and dandy. But here's where all this excessive Trudeau travel sticks in my craw a little bit. Let's look at the gold standard of prime ministerial responsibility and accountability for a second, shall we? The beloved Harpers. The fiscally responsible, low-key couple did take family vacations. Of course they did. And they used the Challenger jet because that is what is required of them. The Harpers, they're precious still, and they need to be kept safe. They are national treasures. But whenever they flew on the Challenger for personal reasons, they reimbursed the taxpayer for the cost of the flight had they flown on a commercial airline. It was a good balance between security and respect for the taxpayer and paying for your own family when you already have a pretty decent taxpayer-funded salary. The Harpers didn't exactly come from wealth and means either, whereas Justin Trudeau came into the job as MP and then Prime Minister as a millionaire with a million-dollar car. Forgive me in this sickeningly slow economy where we can't even get a pipeline built and there are looming layoffs in Alberta literally every single day if I think it's irresponsible and inappropriate to pay for a millionaire's private luxury vacations. But there's another reason for normal people to find this sort of inefficient travel plans annoying. The Liberals are of the mindset that we only have, you know, 12 years left on this planet before we die of climate change if we don't act now. If I don't park my SUV and pay a carbon tax making everything I purchase and do so much more expensive, then I'm part of the problem. I'm killing us, or so Justin Trudeau would have you believe. You see, Justin Trudeau cares so much about climate change that he even took the time to lecture Canadians about impending doom of it all on Twitter. He said, climate change is real. That's why we're making big polluters pay and giving the money right back to Canadians. Claim your climate action incentive when you file your taxes this year. Now, when you think about it, Trudeau was probably just landing on the third leg of his Ottawa to Florida, Florida to Ottawa, Ottawa back to Florida vacation commute. Thanks a lot, Justin Trudeau. We probably only have 11 years left to live now. I'd suggest to you that Justin Trudeau is probably one of the biggest carbon polluters out there. You know, if you care about those sorts of things, I don't necessarily. But instead of Trudeau paying for it all, like he wants big polluters to do, it's always the rest of us paying, isn't it? As a wiser man, then me said once, once they start acting like the climate is in crisis, maybe I'll start acting like it is too. Stay with us. More up next after the break. Welcome back, everybody. We are officially in our campaign window here in Alberta, and it's a big window, a bay window. We have to have our elections held between March 1st, 2019, we're already past that, and May 31st, 2019, and we need to have a 28-day campaign. Now, we aren't officially campaigning in Alberta yet, but that hasn't stopped the parties from doing it, but only one party is campaigning with 
my money. And joining me now to talk about the state of the election campaign that isn't quite yet is my friend William Macbeth from Save Calgary. Thanks for coming on, William. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Now, I was thinking, who would know, and I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I'm gonna, who would know as much about this stuff as I do, <laughs> that we would have an engaging 20-minute conversation, and you were the first guy <laughs> that popped oh. into my mind. Well, it's an honor. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the things that uh, Jason Kenney has announced in the last little bit, and there is a ton of red meat in this for conservatives. Some are, um, you know, they weren't really top of mind issues, but I think conservatives are going to jump at them, like the financial supports for veterans and first responders and that hero fund that Tani Yao, who himself is a firefighter, announced. I think that's fantastic. And I think um, it might actually even sway some of those traditionally public sector votes, you know, the firefighters union, the police union, sort of in favor of the UCP? I, you know, I think it's interesting that Jason Kenney has chosen to put out quite as much policy as he has before an election gets going. And I, I think in the case of, of this um, Heroes Fund, you know, Alberta has, I think, a pretty enviable uh, track record when it comes to its first responders and uh, the work they've done. You know, we saw them here where I live in Calgary during the 2013 floods. We saw them doing wonderful work up in Fort McMurray during those devastating fires. And I think there's a genuine love for, yeah. from Albertans for the people who work as our first responders. So I'm really glad that the UCP chose uh, a policy and put forward a policy for a group that maybe doesn't get enough attention from uh, from the government of, of the day. Uh, but certainly that's just one of an entire range of policy that Jason's put out over the past, uh, uh, past few weeks, and he shows no signs of slowing down on the policy front. So I guess every day we, we wait to see what comes next. It is literally coming every day. I mean, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and I think we've had three policy announcements <laughs> this week. Um, one that I know you folks at Safe Calgary um, and some of your associated uh, organizations have been talking about is the red tape reduction. Yes. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? Well, I, you know, it's a it's a term that gets thrown around, red tape, government regulation, and it seems a little, uh, a, a little, uh, you know, hard to concrete, hard to just sort of really understand what it is. But if you think about it, uh, since Rachel Notley became premier in 2015, this government has been sending the message that we are closed for business, that Alberta is not where, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an investor, this is not where you're choosing to put your uh, your resources and your time and effort. And one of the big things she's done is written tons of new regulations. Now, for a really big business, they have HR departments and legal teams and through the thousands of pages of government regulation that exists. But for people who are small business owners, mom and pop shops, people who are running restaurants and small stores and little groups like that, it's it's completely unreasonable the amount of government red tape that uh, that they have to go through. And it's time and money they have to spend complying with arbitrary NDP rules rather than spending the money to create jobs and uh, and improve their customer service and, and buy inventory and all those things. So the one in three rule, which uh, we've been calling for personally, which we love, the idea that we are over-regulated to death, let's cut a third of all 
unnecessary government regulation. So we can't wait for that to get going shortly after Jason Kenney hopefully becomes the next premier of Alberta. Well, and enforcing all that extra red tape is also very expensive. So it's not just expensive for the business, but it's expensive for everybody else who's involved in the economy, everybody else who's paying taxes, because those expenses are passed along to the consumer, the ones that are incurred by the business. But you also do need all these government bureaucrats to come along and make sure that you're following all the rules. And, uh, you know, when you strip some of that out of the system, boy, that sure frees up a lot of cash to do a lot of other things with like um, higher frontline staff in the hospitals. Um, another thing that came out this week, I saw um, rookie MLA Devin Dreeshin did a video explaining this. It's the new property rights legislation. And I think this is a red meat thing that is tossed out to those um, former Wild Rose supporters like myself, in all honesty, who um, were really concerned about um, the infringement of on our property rights here in Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a key Wild Rose core commitment. And uh, as someone who worked for Wild Rose for, for many years, I can tell you, uh, it was one of those things where when we particularly went to communities outside of the big cities, when we went to small towns and villages, you would have farmers and leaseholders and other people who own property up in arms about the then arbitrary actions of, of the Redford PCs. But then after that, certainly the NDP in assigning huge swaths of property to protected status or uh, canceling mineral rights and canceling grazing leases, uh, leases without uh, any real consultation. And it, it seemed like it was just uh, whether or not you would get to keep uh, your full property rights. So I think Jason looked at at some of those things that people found were irritants under the old PC government, now the NDP, and said, let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. Let's make sure that this new United Conservative Party uh, takes into account the fact that it has, it has two grandfather parties, two legacy parties, and for Walrose, absolutely property rights was a huge issue. Now, sticking on the issue of us rural folks, um, us meaning me and not you, um, <laughs> you're one of those fancy city people. Um, there's a new legislation that Jason Kenney has proposed that I think is going to satisfy a lot of farmers. Um, it is the replacement of Bill 6, that's that farm unionization law that put bankers' yes. hours rules on Alberta family farms. Um, it, this new legislation comes with a fantastic name and really a populist touch because uh, for being someone who followed closely and covered closely and spoke to the farmers and the people who were protesting Bill 6, um, I think Jason Kenney has listened to exactly what they wanted in his new farm freedom and safety legislation that is the greatest name. <laughs> no, whoever whoever worked on the team to come up with the name, uh, you know, they deserve uh, an extra day off on the weekend, I think, yeah. for services to, to the UCP. Uh, you know, I think for Bill 6, um, what it demonstrated more than anything on the part of the Notley government was an absolute ignorance of life outside of a big city, and two, a 
a, you know, the idea that somehow farmers didn't have the best interests of their families and of the people working there. And therefore, the government approached it from a from a let's treat farmers and family farms like villains and um, as opposed to, OK, we see some issues with with some things. Let's have a conversation with farmers and try and work out something that's going to work for both. The NDP just it was it was so tone deaf on the part of the NDP when they put this forward. Uh, and I think it really has hurt uh, whatever slim reelection chances they had for their rural seats. Um, I, I, you know, there's been a couple long articles recently from some journalists about, you know, Rachel Notley and her NDP, and they've talked about a few, you know, the big missteps. And I think Bill Six, when they brought it in, was. So I'm really happy that Jason Kenney has decided we're going to, you know, right off the bat, change this law, this law that uh, seemed to suggest that, you know, somehow Alberta farms were inherently dangerous and, and risky and that farmers couldn't be trusted to work with their families to make good decisions about how labor gets done and needed intrusive government in order to fix a problem that, frankly, wasn't really a problem at all. So that's going to be a good news for rural Alberta, I think. Yeah, I, and I, I like how Jason Kenney went back to what the farmers were saying at the time. Part of the reason the NDP said that um, they needed to bring in Bill 6 is because um, these farm employees didn't have insurance coverage. And so the NDP wanted to force everybody to buy WCB coverage. Right. So um, everybody knows WCB is expensive and it's a hassle. Most people yeah. who have to um, put in a claim have to fight um, to get their claim acknowledged by uh, the WCB bureaucracy. A lot of the farmers at the time were saying, look, we have better insurance for our employees under our farm insurance. But like you say, the NDP just didn't even understand that that was the case and painted these farmers as cheapskates and villains. So this really does address the problem. It mandates insurance and it gives farmers the choice for what's right for their farm. I think it is fantastic legislation. Uh, absolutely, and I and I think it shows um, the two different very two different attitudes towards uh, how to fix a problem. There's big government, big intrusive government, top down, or there's listening to Albertans, to stakeholders, to people who are directly impacted by these things, and and using their wisdom in building policy solutions. And you know, of course, the NDP. You know, they don't they've never found a government program that they thought they didn't think should be bigger or more <laughs> intrusive. And I think for Jason and the UCP, we're like, look, we've been farming in Alberta a long time. Uh, maybe our farmers have a better idea of how to handle some of these things than bureaucrats in Edmonton. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to see a party listening to the people actually <laughs> affected as opposed to the Alberta Federation of Labor. Yes. Um, <laughs> Now, I wanted to talk to you about one that's been moderately controversial, I suppose, on line amongst the NDP troll accounts um, on Twitter, which I guess the mainstream media thinks is news. Yeah. Jason Kenney has proposed um, lowering the minimum wage for young people, which would naturally create jobs for young people who are actually seeing some pretty high unemployment rates. But for some reason, that's controversial to the NDP who don't have a business person amongst the bunch. Yeah, I, you know, um, I think for the New Democrats, 
a lot of them are are very idealistic. And in yeah. their world, there are a lot of black and white issues. And there are a lot of, um, we have to uh, set a pure ideological policy and, you know, regardless of the impact. But the impact has been pretty brutal. Um, for anybody who's been looking at job availability in those service sector jobs, places like McDonald's and Walmart and things like that, um, the $15 hour minimum wage has hit younger workers by far the hardest because they don't have the experience that older workers do. Um, I think a lot of employers uh, look at older workers and see someone who could be working there for five or 10 years, not a teenager who may only work there for a few. So, uh, you know, yes, some people are getting paid more per hour now. They're getting paid $15, but a whole lot of them are just not working at all and are unable to find those entry-level jobs that are so important for young people to get the experience they need. Jason's solution is, well, maybe we have a age-based um, discount on that minimum wage in order to spur job creation. The NDP, you know, call it high heresy. But I think for a lot of teenagers, they're like, look, this $15 an hour minimum wage isn't doing me any good if I don't have a job. And jobs, I think, are where some of the things the NDP are going to find really tough going in. You know, they've been talking about Alberta's recovery is working. Yeah. Well, give me some evidence that Alberta's recovery is working because Alberta's unemployment rate, 7.4%, Calgary now with the highest unemployment rate of a major city in the entire country, those jobs aren't being created. And it's why, you know, they think that the proposed corporate tax cut from 12% to 8% is, you know, just the most evil policy that's ever been put forward. Whereas Jason Kenney says, we need to do something like that, something radical, something dramatic, something bold in order to send the message that Alberta is open for business, that Alberta is where businesses and investors should send their money. It's a distinct opposite message than the one the NDP have been sending. So I think you're going to see a lot of policies that the NDP and the left think are horrible, but that everyday Albertans and that those who are involved in businesses, including small and medium-sized businesses, are going to be, thank goodness, this, these changes are coming. Yeah, a lot of these policies have a very Ralph Klein feel to them, mm -hmm. um, which, I mean, who isn't nostalgic for the Ralph Klein <laughs> days? <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I, I often joke, I think the minimum wage hike to $15 is just the NDP giving them a post-election, giving themselves like a post-election raise, oh. because I think that's where a lot of them are going to land given their, given their qualifications. <laughs> um, the, uh, on the minimum wage, Sheila, I had to laugh because I saw an online ad, the NDP are advertising for door knockers and phone callers, uh, and they're paying $20 an hour. And of course, I was shocked by saying, well, wait. Surely people will do these jobs for $15 an hour. That's why the minimum wage was hiked up. Are you instead saying that you have to set a salary rate that the market decides is what is worth time and effort? So if you're only going to get door knockers and phoners for $20 an hour, that's what you pay? Goodness me, they're following the, you know, the conservative approach. Let the market set the salary rates. Uh, and so, I mean, I, it means that they don't even believe their own minimum wage, uh, you know, uh, propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, given their ability to fundraise, I, I just uh, I don't know if they can afford 20 bucks an hour, but that is what the market is paying these days. Um, <laughs> there's another big one. I think Bill won. Um, 
when Jason Kenney takes office, at least that's what he's campaigned on since the day he decided that he was going to run for PC leader mm-hmm. um, before the parties united was the repealment of the carbon tax. That's bill one. What do you oh, think well. that's going to do for business in Alberta? Uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, people may not know a ton about where the United Conservative Party is going to land on some issues, but they definitely know that they're against this carbon tax. And I think the carbon tax thing, it's funny how many how many different sort of uh, economists and other people are now championing the carbon tax because they know uh, it, it is not politically popular with Albertans, even with rebates and things like that. I think the reasons are pretty simple. It makes life more expensive for Albertans and for businesses at a time when families and businesses are both struggling. The things you buy most, gas, uh, groceries, uh, even insurance, products like that, they're all being driven up, the cost of those driven up by this carbon tax. Uh, And as a result, businesses don't want to do business in a place with the carbon tax. You know, you look at our neighbors to the south in the United States, their economy going gangbusters right now. And one of the reasons is if you're looking to invest in North America, do you want to go to Canada with this built-in, make everything more expensive tax? Or do you want to go to the States where they say, no, we want you to come here and do business. And that's why their unemployment rate is you know, several percent lower than us. It's why their business growth is dramatically higher than ours is. So I think for carbon tax, um, it was one of those ideas that economists and government people you know, who live in a very different world than a lot of us sat around and said, well, this is an excellent idea, but that everyday people really uh, haven't gotten on board with and have a lot of concerns with. And rightfully so, there has been no reduction in greenhouse gas emissions because of this carbon tax. BC's analysis, you know, most people have, you know, BC's had the carbon tax as long as they look at it, emissions haven't gone down. So what on earth do we have a carbon tax for if it's you know, it's giving us all this economic pain, but it isn't actually making the environment any better. Yeah, but you got free light bulbs and a low flow shower head, <laughs> William. Aren't you happy about that? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, uh, surprisingly, the NDP didn't send me my light bulbs. Maybe I, uh, maybe I was on the wrong mailing list. You're a big boy, and I feel like you could probably <laughs> change your own. I, um, I have changed them, yes, <laughs> on my yeah. own. Didn't need government to do it for me. Oh, boy. Now, on the flip side, um, it looks like the UCP, they're campaigning like they are going to form government. They're coming out with actual uh, proposals for legislation that I think, it seems as though each piece of their legislation addresses one major concern with what the NDP have done in the last uh, almost four years, whereas... (laughs) The NDP, they seem to be just campaigning on dishing out money. And if you go to the Alberta NDP website, it is nothing but attacks on Jason Kenney. There's no real policy proposals happening there. It's Jason Kenney waffling on Springbank Dam. Jason Kenney's hurt students. Um, It's just um, like they are campaigning like they're the opposition already. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people, I think, would have described Rachel Notley herself as quite positive and, and uh, you know, optimistic, to use the phrase from our prime minister, a sunny ways person, so to speak. But the NDP campaign is one of, if not the most negative campaign I've ever seen in provincial politics. They are offering virtually no positive image for middle class, middle income, everyday voters, and instead 
are gambling that if they attack Jason Kenney enough, if they if they uh, find enough little things to try and paint him as this, you know, extremist, crazy, right wing, Attila the Hun type figure, that somehow Albertans are going to forget the frankly quite lousy record of this NDP government in office. I mean, what they, I think, should be doing is they should be figuring out if they have any achievements and they should be trying to showcase that and say, you need more of this. We want to continue whatever it is that we've been doing for the last four years. But I mean, I guess they know that that isn't going to work for them because they frankly don't have a record that they can campaign on. They can't campaign on the economy. They can't campaign on job creation. Uh, they can't campaign on uh, you know helping uh, ordinary Albertans le you know live more affordably or things like that. So instead, it's the same old fear and smear campaign from the left, which has been their standard practice since well since I've been doing politics. I remember the 2000 election and how Stockwell Day. That's all the liberals wanted to talk about was was how evil Stockwell Day was and how evil Stephen Harper was and now how evil Jason Kenney is. And I don't think Albertans are going to buy it though. I don't think so either, because um, it feels like a campaign of gaslighting. We're like we're supposed to um, maybe we've experienced the last four years differently <laughs> to, to use, you know, the prime minister's excuses, you know, like when the NDP paint themselves as the champions of the healthcare system and Jason Kenney's just going to burn down all the hospitals and bulldoze all the schools. Wait times have gone up. We have some of the wait, worst wait times in the country so for the ndp now to say no we need to continue doing it our way our way is the best way uh, albertans know if you've tried to access the healthcare system they've utterly failed on this uh, absolutely i think for any uh, healthcare is a great example it's the ndp solution is no other changes other than just pouring more money into the system and at some point, when do we say that's not enough? That is not enough to fix our healthcare problems. Healthcare budgets were once 25% of the provincial budget, then they were 30, now they're over 40. Is it when it gets to 50% of, you know, one out of every two of our tax dollars being spent to fund healthcare that we finally say maybe it's time for some new thinking? And instead of of demonizing people who suggest there might be other and better ways of delivering healthcare, uh, you know, we should be looking around the world at jurisdictions that really have figured out how to do this better. Uh, it's a source of pride, I know, for Canadians, our publicly funded healthcare system. Personally, uh, I, I think it's great to have a universal public system, but I don't think that simply maintaining healthcare status quo is either a good policy or it's what particularly Albertans want when they see their grandmothers and grandfathers waiting months or years for hip and knee replacement surgery, when people are waiting months and months and months for MRIs that, you know, that's time that they could be diagnosed and starting to start their treatment programs. There's so many examples of, of inefficiency and, and waste in healthcare. And for the NDP to suggest that any change, any new thinking on this is is heretical. Well, that's one of the reasons, the big government reasons why people aren't looking at the NDP for re-election. Now, one last question for you. Um, when do you think the writ is finally, finally going to drop? When can we get out of this campaign loop that isn't a campaign? <laughs> well, I, I should offer the caveat, Sheila, that I've been almost wrong every single time on when I thought an election would be. Uh, it's not been one of my fortes for getting <laughs> right. But 
I think there's two schools of thought. I mean, I think there was a thought that it would happen relatively quickly. In fact, a lot of people thought next week, given that there's a throne speech coming out and the government's going to lay out its agenda uh, and then would go to the polls and campaign on it. We're getting word today, though, that they do intend to hold a spring session. They want to introduce an, another health care bill in order to, you know, basically, I guess, guard against the evil Jason Kenney healthcare destruction plan that they foresee coming. Uh, and they probably want to, you know, pass a couple other sort of, you know, uh, bills that, that really help them with their campaign strategies. So we may not end up having this campaign until we get, you know, kicking off in April or even possibly kicking off at the beginning of May. So we may, you know, I, I would say too personally, if I were the NDP and I'm looking at these poll numbers, why wouldn't I stay in office every single last day that I could get in my taxpayer salary and my government benefits, knowing that in 28 days after that election call, I'm going to be out of job looking for new work. So there may be that there too. I see that side of the argument, but I just think that it is time <laughs> to put Albertans out of our misery instead of hanging on to power like Maduro <laughs> as long <laughs> as you can. Um, William, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and being so generous with your time all the time with me. Um, and thank you and keep fighting for freedom. Well, thank you, Sheila. And I want to say Canadians should be so grateful to have you. How many news stories have you broken in the last few weeks that other media have then you know, taken credit for? Uh, I think it shows why we're so lucky to have you in the, in the job that you're doing. Well, thanks. You know, sometimes I think I'm doing the Lord's work in that if I can get the National Post to chase me to cover the stories uh, Canadians actually care about instead of the stories that they care about, maybe they can stave off job losses over there just a little bit longer. So, you know, maybe they should thank me for that. <laughs> I, I certainly think they should. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, William. Have a great day. Stay with us more up next after the break. go today let's take a look at some of your feedback some of your comments your queries and questions to us when David Menzies was in Ottawa this week with our gorgeous beautiful jail Trudeau billboard truck Menzies did an interview with a citizen who was after my heart she had a lot to say not much of it good about the state of affairs in Canada under Justin Trudeau Al Peterson writes as a typical narcissist Trudeau does not hate women he hates anyone who stands up to him. Men or women are fine as long as they know their place in a supporting role. If they don't, they are treated with contempt and kicked to the curb. You know what, Al? I think you are right. Justin Trudeau uses women for the purpose of preening to the entire world about what a feminist he is. But if men's rights were the flavor of the day, then Trudeau would be holding them up to virtue signal too. I think that's how he is. For Trudeau, it's whatever gets him the most clicks, the most likes, the most shares, and the most favorable international press coverage, and not about how his bad ideas affect those of us at home. As you know, I'm filling in tonight because the boss is over in the UK covering Tommy Robinson's lawsuit against the Cambridgeshire police. Now, Ezra did a video about how he became part of the whole story when the judge at the trial told him to stop giving his 
color commentary and just act as a court stenographer while reporting. Stephen E. writes, when in a police state, don't poke the bear. If it's a matter of two or three days for the judgment, just wait it out. Once outside the UK, you can always be as opinionated as you wish. Just remember, there are 900 thought police in London alone, and if you say something that hurts the feelings of one of those constables, you may get a 5 a.m. visit. Stephen, I think that's good advice, although I feel like Ezra would probably like to experience the exhilaration of being a political prisoner just once in his life, even if it is just for a couple of hours. Could he stand to go on the political prisoner diet? Maybe, but I don't think he'd like it for all that long. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you to everybody in Rebel HQ in Toronto for turning what I've given them into a show for you tonight. Ezra should be back in his rightful place tomorrow. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.